Um, okay, so the name of the talk today is Data Transparency and AI Ethics. And um, what, I'm, what I'm planning to do here today is talk a little bit about this field within, within computer science and also social sciences, humanities and law around algorithmic fairness or algorithmic unfairness. Um, I'm then gonna talk a little bit more about um, this idea of data as infrastructure and, um, and the kinds of data sets that we start looking at and are thinking about with regards to machine learning and what it means to treat data sets as infrastructure. And then I'm going to conclude with um, kind of a brief overview of the research program for the genealogy of data that um, my team at Google uh, on the ethical AI team has been working on, as well as some collaborations that we have between people at um, the Center for Data Ethics at the University of San Francisco, uh, UCLA, and uh, uh, several other institutions. Um, so for this group, um, if you've been following, you've, you've probably come across this example, um, but if not, I'm reviewing. Um, you know, until the 1990s, virtually all color calibration for color film was based on lighter, whiter skin tones. And so this, this idea of, of the Shirley card, the color calibration card um, was used to calibrate all film um, that Kodak was using. And they used this, um, this person who looks stereotypically feminine, who uh, is, is, is white passing. And they were using this to color, uh, to, 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 to collaborate, uh, Calibrate film, and it was actually wasn't until complaints from chocolatiers and wood manufacturers um, that uh, Kodak actually fixed this. They, you know, the, you, you see in this image on the left, um, this 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 black family that is washed out by by the color film, and then um, but then it, um, the, these these other um, uh, corporations are requesting that you need to fix this, um, and it's notice, notable that you know this is. These requests weren't coming from actual people of color, um, actual black people in, in, in their requests. Um, and so you've been paying attention, you've probably seen or heard from Joy Bolomini, uh, who recently with um, my my uh, my colleague Tini Debru and Deb Raji uh, won the EFF Pioneer Award for, for this work, um, was that they were looking at um, AI systems and ML systems that were doing facial analysis. And and kind of the, the story that Joy likes to tell is that she started to work on facial analysis and opened uh, a typical program for this and it analyzed her face and it didn't detect it. She put this white mask on and it was actually able to recognize her face. And so Joyce says, in my, in my case, a white mask was a closer fit to what the system has learned was a face in my actual human face. Um, so in a word, you know, algorithmic bias, bias um, uh, like human bias, like many types of bias uh, that, that humans hold, uh, can result in exclusionary experiences and discriminatory practices. And so you know, what Joy and, and Tunit, uh, uh, who's one of the co-leads of, of my team, did in, in 2018 is that they developed this data set in, in, this, in this auditing practice in which they collected a data set from parliamentarians around the world. And um, they, uh, uh, they went ahead and, 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 and assessed commercial algorithms on a task of gender classification. And in by gender classification, that has its own issues. We can talk about that in the Q and A. But it was a good test because of the reporting that they could do. It could it could present a, a binary, true or false, uh, or, or uh, male or female um, for this. And, and and what they found, uh, probably 
to no one's surprise, uh, if you're if you're in this in this lecture, um, was that these these um, commercial uh, ML uh, um, commercial AI uh, gender classification systems did much more poorly for darker skinned women um, in uh, across the board. And so you know the 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 best the biggest gap. Um, in, in the third model, here's a, a, a lighter skinned man having a 99.7% accuracy rate compared to a darker female of 65.3%. Of um, and so in a similar guise, some researchers at, at Facebook, DeVries and all, what they were looking at is uh, commercial object recognition. So, so much of the conversation focuses on, on, uh, on, on facial, facial recognition and facial analysis. They said, well, let's look at commercial object recognition. You know, does do, do these commercial uh, tools actually detect the right object in these images? And, and so these 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 systems are used in, in many locations, everywhere from robotics to um, to things like uh, uh, um, uh, surveillance um, and 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 um, and and. and, and, and um, Different deployments and in self-driving cars, for instance, and what they found is that, um, you know, they were were they were they were targeting at this at um, on the left. This example of this this example is SOAP in Nepal. They were using this data set called the Dollar Tree data set, and um, in which they were reporting variation based on on monthly income, and found that the the classification that the system was making for um, for soap was food, cheese, dish, wood, cooking. Um, whereas when they pointed this at, at, a, at a soap dispenser in, in the UK, uh, it reported soap dispenser, toiletry, faucet, lotion. So the errors were kind of close. And so you, based on you know, what these systems are actually trained on, the training data, um, this shouldn't be necessarily too surprising. ImageNet, which I'm going to talk about at length in this talk, was trained mostly on data that comes from the US, Western Europe, with some marginal uh, collection from uh, Africa, Asia, um, the, the, South, the South Asian continent, subcontinent. Um, the same with COCO, which is the major data set, as well as open images. Meanwhile, the distribution of world population looks much, much different than that. It looks uh, much more distributed um, throughout the world. And so there's been a number of different interventions on how to fix this. You know, I, I think there's been such a fixation on data. And, um, and, and to that end, you know, one intervention of this um, that IBM made was that they released this data set called the Diversities and Diversity and Faces data set. And um, you know, they were saying, you know, they they had they had read the literature, they had read Joy and Tamit's work and said, okay, well, this is the way we're going to fix this is that we're going to collect all these data from all around the world, all kinds of skin tones, all types of faces. Let's try to get these recognition systems to actually recognize, recognize people. But at the same time, you know, the, the underbelly of this is that what happened is that the facial recognition uh, the, the system that was meant to make facial recognition more fair and work for everybody uh, actually was scraping millions of, 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 of images without people's consent from, from online board. And so this is akin to what uh, uh, Louis Seamstra and Kianja Yahana Taylor have talked about as predatory inclusion in other domains, the way of the actual entry into inclusion 
exclusion means you already have to uh, give up or you know these practices of being represented are already extractive, uh, non-consensual, ethically questionable. In the words of of, of uh, Anna Lauren Hoffman, you know she goes a step further and says these discourses of inclusion may actually hinder or hinder progress to ethical data use. So the operational the operational inclusion, she says, um, operationalizes the language of remorse in doing better to obscure its commitment to a substantive techno-rationalist concept of the future. So what I wanna focus on in the talk today is this idea of focusing on data and understanding how we can understand data set bias. And so quoting Aaron Plasic in the, in the um, communications uh, of, of, uh, of the ACM, he says, to begin to see how biases are propagated and reinforced via machine learning system training data. We need histories of the data sets themselves. And we take plastic in this challenge seriously, where we're saying, if we want to understand and intervene in the harms of ML and AI systems, we have to interrogate the histories of the data sets, the data practices, and the values and assumptions that are embedded in the data sets. So that brings me to the second part of the talk, which focuses on data sets as infrastructure. And what I'm actually going to be using in this example is uh, in, in, in the section is this focus on ImageNet. Now I focus on ImageNet because ImageNet was uh, to quote one of its progenitors, Pepe Lee, an effort to map out the entire world of objects, okay? Uh, within ImageNet, it has over 14 million images within the data set um, with over 20,000 categories. And it's regarded as a key benchmark it's hard to underestimate or overstate how important ImageNet was to the development of modern AI. Um, ImageNet itself was developed by a team of AI researchers at Princeton and Stanford to support research into development into visual object recognition. Um, and so what they did with, with ImageNet, the, the, the prior, the, just, to, just to give you a sense of scale, the prior uh, uh, instantiation, kind of the prior art in benchmark data sets prior to ImageNet was a data set called Pascal VOC. Comparatively, Pascal VOC had about 19,000 images, about 20, round up to 20,000 images in 20 categories. Now, the categorical structure of the data set is derived from a data set called WordNet, which is a large database of English words organized into a hierarchy based on semantic relationship developed by cognitive psychologist George A. Millen in the 1980s. Keywords for each concept were used to scrape web engines for images. And this is kind of at a time in the early 2000s when Google image search was very new and image searches were new altogether. Um, and they collected tens of thousands of category images for every WordNet concept. Um, after that, each image was reviewed by a set of human annotators who were instructed to confirm the presence or absence of the given concept in the image. And then images were retrieved from web queries associated with a particular category and only included if there was enough agreement between uh, annotators here. And I should say the annotators here were also um, crowd workers that were uh, drawn from the newly developed Amazon Mechanical Turk tool. Okay, now ImageNet is often regarded for one of the reasons that is 
hard to overstate its importance with the emergence of our current era of deep learning, this current era of predictive modeling based on deep neural network models. Um, more specifically, what they did to promote um, ImageNet, the data set itself, is that the team developed this challenge called the ImageNet Large Scale Visual Challenge, or more, more colloquially known as the ImageNet Challenge. And it was a classification task in which a machine learning algorithm had to accurately classify uh, a set of image which fell into 1,000 distinct categories. And, and so the, they, they, they shrunk down the data set from, from 14 million to 1.5 million and had 1,000 1, categories. Now the competition one for, ran from 2010 to 2017 and it established the data set as a benchmark against which to evaluate the latest algorithms in computer vision. Um, and so um, there's an inflection point that happens here um, with this. So we, you're seeing this kind of a line that happens and then you see this break that happens right around 2012. What happened in 2012 is that a deep learning algorithm used in the 2012 competition was named AlexNet after its lead author at um, University of Toronto, actually, uh, Alex Krasvinsky. So the use of uh, deep learning methods for vision initiated what has been called the deep learning era, the modern era on this, on this, on this chart developed by um, uh, the uh, 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 company and think tank OpenAI. Um, so nearly all methods for computer vision and uh, natural language processing rely on some flavor of deep learning. Uh, in this sense, they use this idea of deep convolutional neural networks. It's not necessarily a new idea within AI research, but it had been one that was excavated now that there was sufficient data to actually train these models. So with that, with the amount of data and the amount of compute that was actually possible at the time, um, in specialized hardware, um, this has made deep learning the paradigm against which most of AI is developed um, in, in, in the current era. And it's really hard to overstate the importance of this paper and this method um, because it was pub in, published in, in 2012, the paper by Kaczynski and colleagues, the, uh, uh, Ilya Sutskever, and uh, who is now co-founder and chief scientist at OpenAI, and Jeff Hinton, who is emeritus faculty at uh, University of Toronto Computer Science and is now an engineering fellow at Google, was um, Hinton was also the winner of the 2018 um, Turing Award, which is computer science's highest honor. Um, and the paper itself has upwards, last time um, you know, we updated this, this presentation, about 58,000 citations. So this is really you know, groundbreaking stuff. This, this, this data set as a benchmark, uh, you know, there's two moves, the data set as a benchmark, but as well as this move by, by Krasinski, uh, Sutskever and Hinton to really cement the place of deep learning in the field. But then when you start to dig into ImageNet, you know, what's in this data set? How do we actually start to get into this? And so in an in interrogation of this data set uh, into the person submit, the images of actual people. Um, critical media scholar Kate Crawford and artist Trevor Paglin start to really interrogate some of the weirdness, some of the oddities that are existing in ImageNet. Uh, so the GIF on the right reveals this mapping of arcane, racist, sexist, homophobic, 
transcoping and frankly bizarre images categories, uh, image categories um, to real categories straight from the web. So there's things in here um, like uh, Ball Buster, which features images of women with no unifying theme, Bondswoman or Bondsman, Closet Queen, Drug Addict or Junkie, Failure, Loser, Non-Starter, Jezebel, Mistress or Kept Woman, Second Raider, and Wimp, Chicken or Cryberry, Crybaby. There's a bizarre relationship from nouns to images within WordNet, namely the assumption that nearly all words have some kind of physical or imageable relationship to images which exist in the world. There's, of course, no reason to believe this. The relationship between images and their meanings is complicated, me, uh, mediated, and complex. We have whole fields of study, such as art history, photography, um, and whatnot, that study the, the mediation of, and, and meaning making around images. And, but as, as Crawford and Patlin say, in the weird metaphysics of ImageNet, there are separate image categories for things like assistant professor and associate professor. As though if someone to get a promotion, their biometric signature would reflect the change in rank. So the ontology of ImageNet descends from, from WordNet and to that degree also reflects those uh, odd ont ontological choices. And so Paglin, uh, Crawf uh, Crawford and Paglin didn't start with, start with this archeology span of ImageNet. And the well publicized disabled, they trained their own AI model using the deep learning framework CAFE on the ImageNet person category and release a tool called ImageNet Roulette. And the tool spread quickly through Twitter and Facebook, being written about in the tech press and beyond. While many of the categories proved uh, curious or humorous, many of them were nat naturally offensive, racist, and sexist. Journalist Julia Carey Wong wrote about how ImageNet called her a racist slur, while uh, Twitter user uh, Lil Uzi Hurt um, is a journalist at the, at the New York Times, was consistently labeled as black, black person, black more, Negro, or Negroid. Crawford and Patlin emphasized that these data sets are, quote, sim aren't simply raw materials to feed algorithms, but are political interventions. So as such, much of the discussion around bias in AI systems misses the mark. There is no neutral, natural, or apolitical advantage that training data can be built upon. So what are the implications when the cutting edge methods of AI are trained, tested, and validated on data sets as disease? It's not even a requirement that the vision model be trained on ImageNet to have deleterious downstream effects. Uh, as we saw in the example of AlexNet, the methods which are based on these data sets have rhetorical and institutional weight, constructing more and more accepted black boxes in the Latorian sense upon which modern AI infrastructure is being built. And so ImageNet has become symbolically important in the field. In a retrospective, uh, Fei-Fei Li has said that many different fields of computer vision have been developing the ImageNet of X, SpaceNet, MusicNet, Medical ImageNet, and so on. Um, there's, a there's a kind of symbolic way of doing research in which ImageNet reflects. Um, so it's not an anomalous example, it is in fact the benchmark against which many subfields within machine learning and AI are actually uh, actually measuring progress. So in many different ways, data set operates as this infrastructure. We take this idea of infrastructure in a, in a, in a position paper that we wrote um, for the International Conference in Machine Learning to expand this idea of data sets as infrastructure. And so at the most 
and we, we take this idea from infrastructural studies within science and technology studies of thinking through what it means to think about data sets as infrastructure. So at the most obvious and localized level, training data sets determine, determine what the resulting machine model learns, how problems are framed, and what solutions are prioritized. So statistical properties of a data set determine the category boundaries and who slash what is rendered legible by a downstream model. Furthermore, labeled data sets are organized by a particular categorical schema, and they frequently subsume, subsume modeling decisions regarding the conceptualization, operationalization, and measurement of target variables for downstream classification systems, and frequently embed metrics of success. Um, so, so in the case of image that these specific social practices of photography and the sharing of images on the web in you know, circa early 2000s gave rise to a particular view uh, so in this great um, uh, overview for the photographer's gallery, um, uh, 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 Milev uh, uh, reviews these images and data sets. So in queries for hammerhead shark, we see hammerhead shark as a scientific object. In, in the search for trout, we actually see uh, trout being presented as, as a dead trophy, as a, as a, as a thing for, um, uh, to be shown off. Uh, and then lobsters are always presented in this, in this food context. Um, we, 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 when in, we've done some initial research to also show how people in these images are also being reflected in particular types of ways. Second, data sets play a significant role in benchmarking AI algorithms. Benchmark data sets uh, are those data sets which are recognized as go-to standards for evaluation and comparison. And they often take on an authoritative role um, in the subfield and then improvements on these particular narrow metrics associated with benchmarks become synonymous with progress in the subfield. And so data sets that have achieved such authoritative status play a unique and powerful role in structuring research agendas and values within machine learning subfields. And so in this case, ImageNet plays this role in a very particular way. We see that the progress made here with the deep convolutional neural network model led to the biggest decrease in error in the ImageNet competition, followed by the win in 2013 by Matt Zeiler from the University of Toronto, who wanted them to found the, the machine learning company clear, um, clarified. Third, because data sets and their associated benchmarks take on this authoritative nature, they often take the status of the model organism within laboratory studies. And so there's the, this, this deep literature within uh, STS on the model organism. And the characteristics of the model organism are pragmatic, they're, read, they're readily available, they're easy to manipulate, and somewhat uncomplicated in form. And so Robert Kohler has this great book tracing this idea of the, um, the, uh, the Drosophila melanogasser, uh, um, that's the, the common fruit fly, and it's used in genetics research. Um, however, the cheapness and availability of the model organism also opens itself to the set of, a set of conceptual and empirical gaps. Um, so, you know, the particular kind of affordances uh, provided also have important gaps. And it's very common now to see ImageNet be, be taken uh, as, as something in which to test in, in the po popular um, TensorFlow deep learning um, library. All you have to do is have two lines and you import the whole of the ImageNet uh, data set as of 2012. Uh, and also, you know, you can also load this particular 
data set uh, and its and its pre-trained weights uh, uh, through particular models. And, and we can talk about the idea of pre-trained weights and in, in, in embeddings uh, in the Q&A. Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of that. Lastly, image and, uh, data sets operate as infrastructure um, because they provide the methodological backbone of how AI tools are deployed in industry context. And so the boundary between research and um, practice is pretty thin and pliable. And AI researchers, as we've seen by the winners of, winners of the ImageNet competition, flip between academia and industry settings pretty quickly. And I'm someone that sits in, in the industry and, 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 I, and I see this quite closely. Um, and so that research and the practices that follow them enter into commercial, into commercial products. Um, and, you know, in practice, most data, uh, most companies derive value from the data sets that they have internally, but much of the same way that these data sets are collected and annotated reflect what's been, what's been done in, in research practice. So these data set, these data sets perform an infrastructural function by undergirding the material research needs upon which commercial AI is also built and deployed. So within the last bit of this, I'm going to talk a little bit about, about this research program that we are starting out upon. Up, up um, we, we started a few months ago um, uh, called uh, uh, the Genealogy of, of Data Project. So we, ha we have in this, data, this, um, this project four key guiding research questions on what we're focusing on. And this is also covered in the ICML uh, paper uh, uh, that we published. And the first one is thinking about how do data set developers describe and motivate the decisions that go into their creation. And so in some initial work that um, uh, our team and uh, Morgan Klaus Showerman, who is an information studies student at, um, uh, at CU Boulder have started to pursue what we did is we analyzed 114 computer vision data sets and created a codebook for both structured and unstructured content analysis, focusing on developing quantitative measures of particular practices within computer vision, as well as some open-ended questions on things like motivation, values, and justifications. So in some basic research, and this is some work that's, that's in progress right now, uh, we, we're focusing on things like, um, you know, how much in developing of this do data set developers actually dedicate to descriptions of the data set and, and, and documentation? And we actually see a better of this bimodal distribution, although it tilts much more towards the, towards the, the zero part of the scale rather than the 100% the, the, the part of the scale. And, some of the, and, and so in these papers, data set development tends to be rather incidental to model development. Because of the structure of uh, uh, the field of computer vision, um, things that get rewarded are much more about thinking about model work, thinking about innovative models that are going to make progress on tasks like object recognition, like facial analysis, and like facial recognition. So often documentation, just on a, a very crude metric, documentation takes a very small part of the actual paper, is often reported only in, in the experimental uh, section of these papers. The main contribution of the, um, of the papers is often not the data set themselves. Um, and we have about a 50-50 chance in which um, the data set is not the main development in the paper, 
And in places in which it is the main development, these tend to be technical reports or workshop papers rather than things that are going to confer uh, larger amounts of status to computer vision uh, researchers. In another turn, thinking about ethics, um, applying the ethics and privacy considerations um, of these data sets, so on, on a rough count, if they've uh, they, only only five of, um, of of the data sets that we analyze actually report having an IRB and requiring this to go through an IRB process, and only three report uh, explicitly or enacting any privacy considerations of the database. Uh, most notably, especially with the uh, requirement that you need some kind of societal impact section of papers at the NeurIPS, which is the largest venue of um, in which deep learning research is presented, um, none of which now require an ethical consideration section, none of these papers actually include an explicit ethical consideration section. Um, and, and this is in, a, in, in our data set goes from about um, late 1990s to, to the present day. Um, second on some, some work we're focusing, the second question is, what are the histories and contingent conditions of the creation of benchmark data sets? This is some of the work we're, we're planning on, on thinking and, and thinking through particular data sets. And in some regard, we're, we, we've done that with ImageNet and are working through a, uh, working through a particular piece um, uh, uh, that focuses on ImageNet. In other guises, we've seen this uh, done with regards to data sets like the Pima data sets, so the Pima, Im, uh, the Pima Indians data set um, uh, on which uh, Joanna Radin, who's a medical anthropologist, has focused on uh, focused, has focused on this history of this particular data set. And so in her analysis of this data set, she describes how this data set, which is now in the UCI machine learning repository, and how it's been used thousands of times as a toy classification task. And I want to put toy in quotes here. And so this data, the data comes from this indigenous community living at the Gila River Indian Community Reservation outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and it was an artifact of being extensively studied and restudied. Um, this community uh, had been for uh, a high prevalence of diabetes. In her own history of this data set, Radin is attentive to the politics of the creation and processing of the data itself, rather than its deployment of use or, or use. Um, the fact that, quote, data was used to refine algorithms that had nothing to do with diabetes or even to do with bodies is exemplary of the history of big data writ large, she says. Uh, so in this project, we hope, to, we, have, we hope to follow this a bit more and think about, about different data sets, their own contingent histories, their own kind of uh, ways that they've, they've, been, they've, they've drawn data from particular data subjects, experienced particular types of data practices, that have gone through labor, uh, researchers, and involved, involved data subjects. Um, third, we ask how have certain benchmark data sets actually become hegemonic or paradigmatic? Um, and we actually see this idea that particular data sets take on these, this sort of status. And in a particular view, we could say, well, you know, the, in the conventional view, some of these data sets come through size, through, um, through the, the kind of new challenges they, 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 they issue. But we know that it's, it's much more complicated than that. Um, these data sets themselves, in this sense, we're presenting this benchmark that's used in natural language processing, which is called the GLUE benchmark, which I believe stands for the General 
uh, generalized language understanding um, uh, benchmark. And um, you know, this is an example of what's called a leaderboard in which there's particular scores and results that are presented here. Um, and so uh, as, as we argued in the, in the data studies infrastructure section, these become synonymous with progress in the field. Um, and this, you know, this, this idea of benchmarking is actually uh, a, a, a very, has been assessed as very critical. Uh, Jeff Hinton actually uh, challenges this sort of echoing Kuhn uh, to a degree and saying, you know, one of the big challenges a community faces is that if you want to get a paper published in a machine learning journal or a conference, now you have to have this table in it and with all these different data sets across the top and all these different methods along the side and your method has to look like the best one. And this is called state of the art in, 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 um, in machine learning. If it doesn't look like that, it's hard to get published. I don't think that it's encouraging people to think about radically new ideas about how to do AI. Okay, and, 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 and why do we focus, you know, why are these data sets happening? Why does, why are we focusing on these particular benchmarks? Um, and, and, and in some sense, these AI places where it's happening, you know, the only, because we've entered into this regime, there's a consolidation of, of where this research is happening. Uh, so, you know, the, the top of the blue benchmark uh, uh, here was, was dominated by large industry players uh, Alibaba, Google, Badu, Microsoft, Facebook AI, and Microsoft. And so in this sense, progress in the field has to do with reporting and is often directly tied to data and compute power. And lastly, we ask, what are the current work practices, norms, and routines that structure data collection, curation, and annotation? And you know what this reflects is what we really want to try to situate is we can do so much of this reflection based on the artifacts that come out of data set production, including papers, including interviews um, and whatnot. But understanding how these things are done in situ in practice is, is I think really, uh, you know, in order to, to find out their working, I think is, is, is one of um, one thing we wanna, we wanna ultimately pursue. Um, so, you know, what we're sort of pursuing here uh, or want to pursue planning is, is this uh, multi-sided ethnography, thinking about the sites of, of important machine learning research, including University of Toronto and the Vector Institute, which is down the road at the Mars building, um, as well as Stanford, uh, Mila, University of Montreal, uh, et cetera. This also gets at some of the, the, the recent work and connecting with recent work on ethnographies of algorithms that Angel Christine, uh, Sarah Saxon, Nick Siever um, have been pursuing especially about thinking how data work is done, how it's valued, and what those practices look like. So I want to conclude with the kind of implications of this project. One of the major implications is that currently only certain types of challenges to algorithmic fairness are seen as acceptable. So fairness itself too often means not having enough quote-unquote representative data. Um, the contestation that is available to people who want to challenge bias is solely on the basis of the distribution of known categories. And so after the publication of the Excavating AI project by, by Crawford and Paglin, um, the authors of ImageNet responded with uh, a publication submitted, uh, published in 
the uh, the uh, Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency Conference, which is um, this 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 uh, uh, conference around major fairness research, is published called Towards Fair Datasets, filtering and balancing the distribution of the people subtree and the ImageNet hierarchy. And so what they did in this paper is that they did two things primarily. They first identified those person subcategories, which they said were, quote, unimageable, um, based on a concept of imageability from uh, an old line of research within psycholinguistics, as well as balancing the actual distribution of skin tone, age, and gender uh, within the data set. But if we're focusing only on this, we're getting into this trap of inclusion, this trap of what are legitimate challenges to data sets. So one of the challenges that we make to transparency more broadly are thinking about insights about why certain classifications exist, who do they serve, and who holds the power to classify. So designers, engineers, and policy makers need methods to show their work and bring to light these motivations, routines, and norms of creating classifications and annotations. More broadly, we point to contestability, focusing on, trans and we, we say in our, uh, in, in our paper, focusing on transparency with the goal of, of showing the internals of a system without plausible actions of being able to change aspect of that system are a feared victory. Instead, we, we focus on a line of literature that comes from Deirdre Mulligan at the Information School at Berkeley, as well as Ted Hurst, that center contestability. What does it actually mean to change a system? And what would it actually mean to contest a particular data set? Um, and so some questions that we sort of think about and we want to uh, I want to leave you with is when we're thinking about contestability, our first question is who's doing the contesting? Who has the power to contest? And what does that affect? Who has the knowledge or access to contest? Not every stakeholder can just contest in the same way with the same effects. And so we have to identify those people and how their positionality sits within a network of power. Next, we have to think about temporality historicizing moments of consultation, struggle, and negotiation. The focus around a genealogy of data is to unveil the contingent events that show the shape of a data set or the, the set of data practices that could have been otherwise. So we can view this history through a lens of contestation, moments of crisis, struggle, negotiation, moments the data set creators exercise judgment and decision-making which shape the data set one way or another. And lastly, we consider the practice of contestation. What do methods of resistance look like? For instance, from mechanical turf workers who are annotating this data set. What would it look like to design for contestability? How can genealogy open up the possibility for new forms of critique and give rise to new avenues of contestation? And how might this contribute to data set auditing practices and data set development practices? With that, Thank you so much. I want to thank my collaborators, Emily Denton, um, Andrew Smart, Hillary Nicole at, uh, at Google, as well as Jamila Smith-Loud. Um, also, Razvan Amaronesi at University of San Francisco, and then uh, other team members who have helped with this work, Timothy Chodru, um, uh, Andrew Zaldivar, and Nick Mitchell. Thank you. <laughs>